All right, I'm going to begin by talking with you just a moment, kind of launching us into what I'm going to be eventually saying in our study together this morning uh, uh, concerning the miracle in uh, uh, the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Now, I'm going to candidly tell you at the beginning that we may or may not ever get to the miracle in John 2 itself. But if we don't, then the next time Steve asked me to teach, I will come back to that miracle, okay? But what I want to do is use uh, John, the changing of the water to wine, to launch us into a study about the supernatural as opposed to the natural realm. And you'll know what I'm talking about before we finish this morning. Now, I started, you'll notice the, the title of my study on your notes is A Sign with Wine. I started to call it The Making of, of a Good Merlot. But I decided I can't do that. I might be reading into scripture something because we don't know but what it might have been a uh, Pino Grigio. Now, if you know the difference between a Merlot and a Pino Grigio, shame on you. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. One refers to a red wine. One refers to a white wine. We don't know whether it's red or white wine. I have a feeling in that uh, vicinity is probably a good red wine. But the first question is always asked when I'm dealing with this passage of Scripture, was it real wine? Now, I'm not going to get into the argument about any of it, okay? All I'm going to say to you is this. The head honcho of that wedding, and the head honcho, by the way, uh, the governor, King James says, was the one who made certain that everything went right that the food was exactly right, the drink was exactly right. And if what Jesus did in changing the water to wine wasn't real wine, then that head honcho needed to be fired because his reported of, of it was, wow, most people give their best wine at the beginning and save the worst to last so that the palate's disturbed and nobody will ever know the difference. You have saved the very best wine for the last. Now, if it was Welch's grape juice, that guy needs to look for another job, okay? Now, that's all I'll say about whether it was real wine or not. There is also in this John passage an indication that this may very well have been the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. Now, that is with all due respect to the infancy of uh, the book of Thomas or uh, it's a, 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 a called uh, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, written between 150 and 180 A.D., which was well after the New Testament uh, letters had been written. He probably used them as his resource. And in that book, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, there are recorded several miracles that Jesus did when he was a little child, like somebody was pestering him and he threw rocks at him and he made them turn into doves and all of that. Now, I, I'm not one to give a lot of credence to that kind of thing. In fact, I think the language may indicate here that this is the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed, and he did it for a reason. 
And you'll notice in the King James, if you have the King James, I'm not sure about the NIV, but the King James says, uh, this miracle was done. But when uh, Steve read a while ago, he read the correct translation, this sign was done. So the word King James translates miracle there is not the word miracle at all. It's the word sign. And uh, here's what it says. This miraculous sign at Cana of Galilee was the first time Jesus made manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now that's the new living translation. And I think that's probably a correct uh, interpretation of that passage of scripture. The very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. But notice it's used, uh, the word used is the word sign. And that does bring us to mind Acts 2.22, which we read. You know uh, 2.22, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come. And uh, that early infant church, having met in the upper room, uh, the sound of the rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire on their head. Now they're speaking in other languages that all of the people in Jerusalem are hearing in their own tongue. And everybody thought they were a bunch of drunk folks. And Peter stood up and began to preach Jesus in Acts 2. And he said... This is the Jesus that was among you and God verified who he was with miracles, wonders, and signs. And he uses those three words to describe the activity that was around Jesus for the 30 uh, some years that he was in uh, his uh, incarnate state here on this earth before the crucifixion and the ascension. So, those are the three words that I want to talk about as we begin our time together. The first one is the word miracles. Peter said this of Jesus in Acts 2. He was accredited. He was approved. In other words, it was demonstrated in him that he was in fact, in reality, God among us. And the way it was demonstrated is by the working of miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, there are different words there, and there's a little bit of a different emphasis with each word. For example, the word miracles, the Greek word dunamis, or you can get the English there, dynamite. It's the Greek word which means power. It has the idea of the ability to perform. And uh, this is a reference and you'll see your blank there. You can write this is. This is the reference to the acts of God. The A-C-T-S. The acts of God. When the Bible uses the word miracles, it basically is referring to the powerful action or activity of God himself. And so, miracles, dunamis, refers to the acts of God. Then there's the word wonders. This is the Greek word Teros, and it means a marvel or a phenomenal wonder. And it has, it's talking about an effect that is left on all who observe the miraculous acts of God or the miracles. In other words, the wonders is a reference to the awesomeness 
of God. You'll see your blank there. The awesomeness of God. In other words, when God acts in time, in space, among us, when God acts, it is a miraculous thing. And it also is a mind-blowing thing. It is an unbelievable, uh, mind-boggling uh, event. It isn't ordinary at all. There is something supernatural about it. And you can understand that because it's God in his activity that is so awesome in this frame, uh, the natural realm in which we live. And that's why the word is used, the miracles and the wonders. Then there's the word signs. And this is the Greek word semion, which means to reveal or to display or to confirm something. Now, the Gospel of John is the record of seven miracles. When you study the Gospel of John, you'll be studying seven miracles. But the word for those used in John is the word sign because it's in the Gospel of John that the author, under inspiration by the Holy Spirit, is illuminating the fact that in Christ Jesus, God is revealing himself to be present and active among men. And so uh, the changing of the water to wine was the first of those seven miracles in the Gospel of John. So in Jesus Christ, God really is at work in this world in which we live. And it was a miraculous thing. And anytime he does work among us, it is a miraculous thing. It's awesome to behold. And these recorded in John are evidences of the fact that Jesus was God in human flesh. Do all of us agree with that? I mean, that's just a given, right? All right, now. This leads me to say just a few things that I personally have concluded about all of this that I've been talking about. A little of what I'm going to share with you now in these conclusions, I would have to say are things that I have uh, kind of gleaned in my own understanding from the scripture. Some of it may be a little bit of speculation may be a little bit speculative. Now, if it's speculation, I'll tell you. This is what I think. You know the difference between revelation and speculation. Revelation is what the Word of God says. Speculation is what somebody says about what the Word of God is saying. And they're not really sure, okay? So I'll try to be honest there. But I want to say some conclusive remarks about this whole thing of miracles and wonders and signs. And that is... The first one is this. If we believe that Jesus was and is God in human flesh, now having ascended, seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, and we do, then it is no surprise that miracles happen around him. I mean, don't be surprised if you see the action of God, the activity of God around Jesus because he was God in human flesh. And so it's no surprise. 
In fact, when you study the life of Jesus in the New Testament, there are some 40 miracles that are recorded, all the way from the incarnation, the birth, Mary, to the ascension, the miraculous appearing or disappearing of the Lord Jesus as he ascended on high. In between those two miraculous events, there are some 40 miracles that surround the life of Jesus. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's no surprise because wherever God is, something miraculous is going to happen eventually. Am I right? So somebody says, well, Brother Paul, do you believe in miracles? Well, for me, that's synonymous with saying, do you believe in God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is absolutely. And so if we believe in the reality of God, then we automatically, if I understand the Greek language correctly, believe in the miraculous. Because anytime God acts, It is a miraculous event. There's a second thing I want to say uh, by way of a conclusive statement about all of this, and that is this. I think, and this is a little bit of speculation on my part, but uh, follow me here, if you will. I believe it would be safe to say that miracles do do not violate or suspend natural law at all. I'm convinced that when a miracle happens, now remember what a miracle is, God acting, and it's a miraculous thing. It's also awesome. It's a, it's a mind-boggling thing, you know. But when God does a miracle, he doesn't suspend natural laws in order to do it. He introduces a new cause and effect. Now, the best way I can illustrate this, or the simplest way, is to take my Bible. And if I drop this Bible, natural law takes over. What happens? Yeah, gravity falls to the ground. So I drop the Bible, it falls to the ground. But if I were to take this Bible and drop it, and with the other hand, catch it, and raise it up. Now, have I suspended natural law to do it? No. I've introduced a new cause, my right hand, and a new effect, the raising against the law of gravity of my Bible. Okay? Now, follow me here. If I had four Bibles, and I dropped all four, and I reached and brought up one, what would happen to the other three? Yeah, they just continue in the natural realm. The law of gravity would take over. In other words, when a miracle happens, it is God simply stepping into the moment in his activity with a new cause that is himself and a new effect bringing about a different result because he miraculously does it. That's a miracle. But it does not suspend, in my judgment, natural law. He only introduces a new law 
a new cause and a new effect. Now, carry this over to the time in the New Testament when Peter was walking on the water. You remember when he was on board that ship and a storm came up and Jesus came walking? And one of the guys looked out and said, it's a ghost. Uh, it's, he really said, it's a spirit. King James says ghost. It's a ghost. Another one said, no, I believe that's the Lord. Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of that boat and started walking on top of the water. Then he started thinking like a Baptist. <laughs> and he looked at the wind and the wave. Now I can say that because I are out of that heritage, okay? And he began to see the wind and the waves and he began to think what Baptists normally think in such a way. What in the world have I done this stupid thing for? Getting out of the boat. Now you remember what happened? He began to sink. And then Jesus picked him up walked with him back to the ship, okay? So Peter walked miraculously on top of the water. But why was he able to do it? It wasn't because of natural law being suspended. It was a new cause. The Lord Jesus, God himself in human flesh, a new cause introduced with a new effect at his word or at his hand, Peter was miraculously raised to the top of the water. Now, my question is this. What if Jesus had said, Peter, come, and every disciple on that boat had gotten out of that boat? Speculation. But my opinion is, unless God's purpose was for each of them to walk on the water, only the one whose purpose in God's mind was to walk on the water would have been lifted up. In other words, Peter would have walked and all the rest would have sunk. Are you following me here? Now, carry this over to when we ask for miracles in our day. We pray for miracles. And it would take a miracle for the cancer to be healed, for the person to be delivered from the point of death. It would be a miraculous event. Now, is it possible for a miracle to happen? Absolutely. Are we to ask for miracles? Absolutely. But always pray in a Jesus mindset. Father, nevertheless, what your purpose is, I want done above all. And in the miraculous action of God with a new cause and a new effect, and the doctors are enormously surprised. The cancer is gone. Or it can be, as has been with our brother-in-law who was here in July and heard me teach the four times. The cancer took him. We asked for the miracle. We asked for the healing. He died. Now, are we to say that it's because God can't work miracles? Absolutely not. It's because God's purposes in the new cause and the new effect is not a unilateral thing. It is not a given unilaterally. It is in the purposes and the plans of God. So, 
Is the one raised from cancer a sign that God worked a miracle? Absolutely. Is the one who does not survive a sign that God can't work a miracle? Absolutely not. Are you following me here now? So when God acts, it doesn't suspend natural law. It, he only introduces a new cause and a new effect. Now, the third thing I want to mention to you is this. And all that I'm talking about this morning, God's stepping into this world to do miraculous things. And what a wonderful, mind-boggling event that is. We call it a miracle. You would have to know that you're involving yourself in two realms. There's the supernatural realm. That's where God lives. God is spirit. He dwells in the supernatural realm. And there is the natural realm. That's you and me. We dwell in the natural realm. You're sitting in a chair because you have a body. You see me sitting on this stool because you have eyes in that body. You're hearing what I'm saying because you have ears. These are all natural phenomenon, wonderful things, but they're all part of the natural world. Do you understand that? God himself is in the supernatural realm, but when he works a miracle, he steps from the supernatural realm into the natural with a new cause and a new effect and the end result is the purposes and the plans of God are never thwarted. They always come to pass, okay? But you have the supernatural and the natural realm. Now, here's the thing I want you to notice with me. This is, again, tiny bit of speculation, but I have pulled it from the way I see the Scripture. I don't believe, personally, I'm not asking you to agree with me, but I don't believe personally that the supernatural realm where God dwells is separated from the natural realm by distance. I don't believe where God is dwelling in heaven is way far off distance-wise. I believe the supernatural and the natural realms are separated only by dimensions. Now, the natural world, made up of dimensions. How many of you remember the 3D pictures? If you watch the three-dimensional movies in the day gone by, you had to wear the glasses in order to do it. You know what I'm talking about. Well, it was in 1917 that the Austrian physicist Paul Ehrenfest uh, concluded that three dimensions is the best way to look at the world. Wasn't long before a fourth dimension was uh, introduced by a Russian scientist. By the way, it's those four dimensions that he introduced that Einstein used to work out his theory of relativity with time and space and so on. Now, since the 70s and the 80s, we've had the uh, superstring theory. How many of you know what that is? How many do not know what that is? You're not missing anything. 
I couldn't explain it to you because I don't understand it myself. But the super strings theory is that in the natural realm, there's more than four dimensions. In fact, the super string theory says there are 10 dimensions in this natural world. And then the M theory came along a little later and said there are 11. Okay, you add those 11 to the 10. To the 10 and you wind up now we have 19, 20, 21 dimensions in the natural realm. Now we may not understand them. I don't. I can't even say it to you correctly. But I'll tell you this. Because of the reality of what I've just told you, we have our cell phones. We have TVs, remote. We have all of this stuff that we're so used to now. It's incredible. How does it do it? It's like a miracle. I'm driving down the superhighway at 70 miles an hour and Mary Downs wrote an entire book on her phone. Did you know that in your iPhone, there's more electronic than there was in the first spacecraft that took Alan Shepard into space? It, it's, it's unbelievable, but it's all because of the dimensions in the natural realm that we've been able to plug to, into. And when we have the capacity to plug into these dimensions, an iPhone or a computer or whatever, then we get the benefit of all those realms of the natural world. Are you following me? But then there's the supernatural world. I have a feeling kind of extracting it from the scripture that there are at least three dimensions in the supernatural realm. Paul was caught up into the third heavens and he saw things that he couldn't even describe. Indescribable things. But it was the supernatural realm. Now, these are not separated, in my opinion, the supernatural realm, the natural realm are not separated by distance, only by dimension. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. Do you remember when Gabriel came to Mary to tell her that she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and bear a son and they were to name him Jesus and he was to be the savior of people? Don't think of Gabriel coming from way off past the galaxies, past the sun, into our galaxy and our sun, and don't get to think of him doing that. Think of God opening the supernatural dimension in the presence of Mary, and Gabriel stepped out into her presence in the natural world and said, I've come from God to give you this announcement and so on. Do you remember when Stephen was being stoned to death? He had preached the gospel. By the way, he preached almost verbatim. You'd think he stole Peter's sermon from the day of Pentecost. If plagiarism is all that wrong, it may be that Stephen had plagiarized Peter, but we won't accuse him of that. We'll just say he was preaching about the same Lord. And when Peter preached, by the way, on Pentecost, how many got saved? 3, That's right. 3,000 got saved. Hallelujah. Somebody said, if you just preach the word of God, people will get converted and wonderful things will happen. Oh, really? Ask Stephen. He preached the same message. 3,000 got mad and stoned him to death. He was converted though. Yeah. But 3,000 got mad, not converted. Are you following me? There's no guarantee outcome when you preach the word of God. Why? 
Because God has a purpose in every time the gospel or the word is taught. And he will meet his purposes for sure. Just like the miracle, God works with his purposes in mind. Are we following? Now watch this. Here's my point. When Stephen was being stoned by all these people who weren't converted, but they were, you know, just uh, mad at him for preaching. When Stephen was stoned, now watch, he looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne. He didn't have a telescope. Yeah, how did he see all that far off? It was because God miraculously opened the supernatural realm, and there Stephen saw the Lord Jesus standing. Do you remember in the Old Testament when the prophet and his servant were surrounded by the enemy? And the servant said to his, his master, he said, oh, our number's up. We're dead in the water. We better do something. And the prophet said, Lord, show him. And the scripture says, God parted the supernatural and all around the enemy were the angel of the Lord. Now, they didn't see distance. They saw in a new dimension. Now, it is true that those in the natural realm with all of its dimensions, 21 of them if the scientists are correct now, we have no capacity, no ability to see into the supernatural. I'm convinced from what I see in the scripture that those who are in the presence of God in the new supernatural realm, in the presence of God, are not yet given any capacity for connecting here unless God opens the supernatural and allows it to be done. So Elijah and uh, Moses on Mount Carmel, are, are you following me here? These are all miracles of God. Why? Because when God acts, it's a miraculous thing. It's a wonderful thing. Here they were. How did Moses have a body? His body was buried. How did Elijah have a body? He didn't die. He was translated. We don't have an answer to those things, but we do know in a miraculous fashion, what was supernatural was made to be seen in the natural realm. And so I believe the two dimensions, the supernatural dimension, the natural dimension are not separated by distance at all, but rather by dimension. Now here's my fourth and final statement. And I can tell you now, we will not get back to John 2. Okay. <laughs> I will have to do it some other time. Here's my final conclusive remark about this whole thing. As believers, as Christians, there is a sense in which you and I live in the reality of both dimensions, the supernatural and the natural. Is it not true that when we trusted the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit came to indwell us and created 
our spirit anew. It's called the new birth. And the person of the Lord Jesus, his character, his person is being created in us by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit as we grow in grace and in knowledge and so on. Absolutely. That's the supernatural realm at work in our lives. Now, here's the problem. You got two groups of people in the world in which we live that I think are making a mistake. And I don't want anybody in this room to be part of either one of those. So I'll tell you what they are. The first one of those who believe the only reality is the natural realm. In other words, they haven't seen a miracle. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the supernatural. The only thing I believe is in what I can see and I can touch and I can hear and so on. And so for them, the natural world, that's where we are right now, is everything. Okay? And the supernatural doesn't even exist. I think that's a mistake. I mean, they've not only ruled out the uh, activity of God, but they've ruled out by their statement the very nature of God himself. But they can't rule it out. They can only state it, and it's an, un it's an untruth. The fact is, both realms do exist. But there's another mistake made, and this one is basically by Christians, and that's this. The only realm that I want to live in and be concerned about right now is the supernatural. So I no longer want the natural realm at all. I care nothing about it. In other words, the first deny the supernatural realm and the second group denounce the natural realm. And both are making a sad, sad mistake. Do you know why? Because we are people of both realms and both realms are ours by the gift of God. Now there's coming a day when this natural realm will be dissolved and a new heaven and a new earth created in a supernatural realm. And I don't know how many dimensions there are going to be, more than we can ever experience or count. It's going to be a joyous time. But until then, we're living in the natural realm, experiencing the reality of the supernatural God who is indwelling us. And how are we to view the natural realm as our enemy? Are we to denounce it? Is it evil? Did you know when the Bible talks about the world being evil, it's not talking about terra firma, the ground on which you're standing or sitting is not talking about the night. It's talking about a system that is anti-God. And there can be a religious world who has a system that is anti-God. We face it every day in the war that we're battling with, you see. But we live in the reality of both worlds. So I want to close with a little bit of a personal testimony. And I'm finished. I have a life verse, Philippians uh, is, one of, is that one, but I also have a life passage, and I want to read you my life passage. I'm going to read you the King James, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, verse 21. Now, the problem is this in the Corinthian church. Paul had pastored the church, Apollos had pastored the church, Peter had pastored the church, and everybody was arguing about who had been their best pastor. Some like Paul, some like Peter, some like Apollos, and they were getting mad at each other who disagreed with them and all that. And finally, Paul writes them First Corinthian letter, and he said, look, every one of your teachers was a gift from God. 
And what is a man? He's just a gift from God. Uh, we were builders, but he laid the foundation. And then he winds up by saying this. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Now he's talking about Peter, Paul, and, and Silas, or, 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 or Apollos, I mean. And so he said, don't glory in those guys. They're gifts. Listen to what he said. Let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. In other words, Paul was yours as much as Peter was yours, as much as Apollos was yours. Every pastor you've ever had is a gift from God to use, for, to you, so just get what God wants you to get from them. And then he goes on to say, for all things are you, yours. And then he says in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, but he just can't help himself. Under inspiration, Paul just goes on. Or the world. Now he's not talking about supernatural world. He's talking about the natural world. Uh, or life. Or death. Or things that presently are in reality. Or things that are yet to come. Listen to him. All are yours. And you're Christ's. And Christ is God's. Do you know what the Spirit says to me in that passage of Scripture? As I understand it in context with the Corinthian church. That for me, Paul Burleson, living in my time. Living in the natural and supernatural realm. I'm seated spiritually in Christ in the heavenly places. And he's come to indwell me. One of these days, the natural will be done away with. I'll be caught up into his presence. And where I'm seated spiritually, I'll be personally, whether at my death or at the resurrection. But the point is, that day is coming. But what do I do in the meantime? View everything you have as a gift from God. It's all yours. The world, things present. But there are some bad things present. Ladies and gentlemen, look. When we begin to understand that everything that happens, happens in the purposes of God, we weep over our losses of loved ones. We ask for God to spare and give them life. Sometimes he miraculously does. Sometimes he miraculously does not. How are we to view these things? All are our gifts in the purposes of God. And we're to celebrate this is mine because it is what it is in my life. It is mine. So I've had Double knee surgery. Sherry, get ready for that second one. <laughs> I mean the pain. And so I battle it. I call, ask somebody, because I can't sleep and all. But don't tell me that, oh, how horrible. No, that was my moment. That was mine. I've learned from it. I'm gaining from it. I'm experiencing things that I would have never experienced without it. And that's true with every troubling pain in our life. We are in the gifts of God, in the natural and the supernatural realm. Now, does that mean there are no tears? Absolutely not. Does it mean there's no pain? Absolutely not. Does it mean that we could wish it were different? Absolutely not. We could wish it were, 
But what I'm saying is simply this. When we learn to live with a worldview where all things are mine, I will weep. I still weep over many things that I wish had not been in his purposes for me. But do you understand? God is at work, not just in the supernatural, but in the natural realm. And so as his kid of the kingdom, I'm going to see the natural and the supernatural as my gift from God. Do you know I believe I'm as spiritual when I'm at OU pulling for them to win a football game as I am when I sit up here teaching? I don't think there's any difference in sacred and, and, and secular. I believe all things are sacred. And a moment of celebration in a marriage, a moment of celebration at a football game, I'm no less in the presence of God enjoying life than I am when I'm sitting here teaching the word of God. Oh, I'd rather do this than anything. But the fact is, all of life is a gift. And I want to make certain that I see the hand of God in it all. Does that make sense? If it does, I'll stop. If it doesn't, you'll have to see me privately afterward and we'll talk about it. But anyway, I'm serious when I say I will get to John 2. We're going to deal next time I ever teach. Uh, if that happens, uh, we'll teach uh, on that. All right? Here's the way I'm going to dismiss this. Uh, hug three necks and shake five hands and get out of here. God bless you. We'll all see you next Sunday. Thank you for coming.